0: Blob Talk
1: Radio Yeah Mic check Mic check One, two One, two One, two For you Yeah uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Word up It's that Biblical Biblical Theology Theology Study The person of God Attributes God. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit He's the king, the priest, and the prophet So please watch as we proceed with the topic Uh, And that's biblical theology That phrase alone, they give some people allergies Uh They say it's not practical enough Uh Just give me Jesus, that will be enough that seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian's not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty. Or it's a travesty. Or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture in God's the key is following the Bible storyline, and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens, sturdy and fixed. To see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah, the Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you Lord, He gave us the Word, providing us correction, yeah. and In the, the spirit, spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace with Within our death, because because we know know the meaning of Jesus Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology.
2: Welcome to another edition of Theology Matters. I am your host, Devin Pallu, and we have a pretty special show today. Today marks our 100th show that we have done. Hard to believe, but we've actually been on the air now for three years. And uh, this time, you know, we've had to take uh, last semester, I had to a, a basically take off that class on Thursday nights. But uh we've been faithful doing this show and tonight is the hundredth episode. So have a have an awesome show in store for you guys. Tonight we're gonna to be looking at intelligent design uh in depth. And uh I have my good friend Jonathan McClatchy, who is gonna be coming on and he's you know, he's got more degrees than a thermometer, so I'll wait till uh about twenty five minutes we're gonna bring him on. And uh, he does a lot of work with the Discovery Institute. He writes uh, blogs on the Discovery Institute. Um, Has done a lot of stuff with Cross-Examine and Frank Turek. And the guy is just, uh, to be honest, a genius. I mean, being uh, about as humble about as I as can be, the guy is brilliant. Two master's degrees. Um, big, big variety, too, uh, of apologetic interests. He does stuff on uh, not only evolution, uh, but also... Um, stuff on Defending the New Testament. Uh, I believe he's got a debate set up with Shabir Ali, so, uh, who's like one of the top Muslim apologists. So we'll talk more with him uh, in a little bit. But um, I have a special guest host with me today. I have my nephew. We call him JJ for short, but it is, what is it, John William or John?
3: John Williams.
2: John Williams say hi to the people, John William.
3: Hi.
2: He is guest hosting with me today, and uh, JJ and me love to to study the Bible together. How old are you, JJ? JJ is seven years old, and uh, since he was just a little kid, he's really loved studying the Bible. Uh, I taught him the Westminster Children's Catechism, and so we've been catechizing him. We're... we're Challenging each other as we're trying to uh memorize three verses a week as well as work through the Westminster shorter catechism so he's uh he's he's awesome he's gonna be a, a theology nerd uh like his uncle, so we're really excited to have him on the show today as well and uh, he's gonna stay with us for the whole two hours and uh even let him him ask some questions and stuff to uh to Jonathan so with that being said, you know I normally bring a guest on for the first thirty minutes and interview them, and uh, I just haven't done that uh, this time because, uh, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the recent events and stuff that's that's going on in the news. Um, a couple things. Uh, one, I think we I, I want to address a little bit about the uh, shooting there in Charleston, uh, that terrible tragedy uh, that took place. Well, last week we had my friend Tony Arsenal on, and we just basically grilled him with about a million different uh, questions regarding theology for two hours, Uh, and he did a great job. And we talked a little bit about this. Uh, But, uh, you know, I I just, again, wanted to to talk a little bit about that and just, um, you know, I think it's important that we just keep the right uh, perspective. You know, I've been very encouraged with a lot of the things that I've seen uh, out of charleston it's it's been nice to see um there's not been race wars and rioting and and a lot of this kind of stuff, and partly is because you know they they got the guy and he's you know he's held a, held in in the jail and uh, I think justice is going to be served, but to see these people who had either been shot or who had lost loved ones uh be able to to give this man the gospel and tell them, you know, basically, you know, what you've done is wrong, what you've done is terrible and horrible, but at the end of the day, what you need most is Jesus Christ. What you need most is the gospel. Is is a beautiful thing, folks. Uh, th- that is something only God can work in a person's heart. I mean, that is something that only God can do in a person's heart. So, Charleston, you know, bravo to how you have handled this. Uh, we need to keep the the church in prayers, folks. I'd ask you to keep Dylan Roof in prayer, the 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 guy that went in there and did the shooting. You know, we don't want to remove ourselves from thinking um, we're we're somehow a lot better, because you know we're not. Uh, granted, you know not everybody goes into the, in the church is shooting people, uh, but we have all sinned grievously against God. And when we stand before, you know, Christ on Judgment Day, uh, we're not judged compared to how we look to Dylan Roof. We're going to be judged according to Jesus Christ and his life. And so we need to be sure that uh, we don't just kind of uh, have this kind of disconnect of, you know, people like Dylan Roof and and Jeffrey Dahmer and these people are, are completely different than us. They're not. They're humans, and that potential is in all of us. And I think it just kind of depends what what do we feed. Do we feed the spiritual man or do we feed uh, the fleshy man? So with that being said, uh, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, Supreme Court's ruling that happened uh, last week dealing with um, same-sex marriage. And I don't think this caught anybody by surprise or... Shocked anybody? I think that uh, we pretty much saw this coming, and and saw that uh, this was probably going to happen. Uh, but um, I think we need to to also have a biblical response uh, as well. Um, I think personally, I think we have to be able to to fight this um, this battle on two two fronts, really. I think there's the secular front that we have to look at, Uh, but we also have to focus on uh, the church and how we respond now that it is the law of the land and uh, this is happening. And I'm trying to pull up a particular article, but um, I think a lot of people have this idea that um, all Christians have is religious arguments Against same-sex marriage, and I think when we present it like that, I think that's that's harmful, because really what it's looking at is uh, you know you guys don't have have anything to offer outside of of um, you know the church or the Bible, but there really are a lot of good secular uh, arguments against same-sex marriage, and they've they've been dealt with. If you're friends with me on Facebook, uh, put several resources up, and actually plan to put more up. I'll put some on our Theology Matters page. In fact, let me get that in there right now. Um, if you go to our, our Facebook page, Theology Matters with the Palouse, uh you can like us on Facebook. All of our podcasts, et cetera, are there. Um, but I think, honestly, now I think we need to really focus on what now do we do in the church? How do we tackle this in the church? Because my fear is this. My fear is, and I think it's I think it's substantiated, that the majority of younger evangelical Christians would probably embrace uh those who practice homosexual behavior and of course now will be able to be married legally. Um how do we how do we combat that? How do we fight for the church? How do we uh how do we approach that? I've seen some people that I see kind of the pendulum swinging two ways, and I I think both ways, uh, neither one can be very helpful. One, you have one side where you have very angry Christians, and they're extremely conservative, and they are, they're livid. And I've seen people say, you know, if I see, you know, because one of the big things that happened uh, was everybody started, everybody that supports the the same-sex marriage, on Facebook, started changing their profile to the rainbow. And you see these comments from Christians, you know, uh, all my friends that have the rainbow of Facebook, I'm deleting you. I'm unfriending you. And, you know, people just going off and saying angry, nasty things. You know, folks, that shouldn't be our response. You know, I understand that we're upset. Uh, I, I believe it's a tragedy, um, I love America. I love this country. It grieves me. You know, it's Saturday, it's the 4th of July, and this is this has happened. But I think we need to remember that this is not our home. This is not our world. We are in the kingdom of God. Yes, we care when the land and the country that God has graciously given us, and we love it, when it is defamed. And it is... Um, you know, spit on in a lot of respects. Now, I understand that. I get that. But there is a bigger picture, folks. The bigger picture is the gospel. right? We want to see our friends who are, you know, affirming of same-sex marriage or what whatever kind of sin it is, we ultimately want to see them come to Christ. And if that's not what we want, then, well, maybe we need to, to question whether or not we're, Um, You know, whether we we have a right heart and maybe, you know, are we really saved ourselves? We need to have a right heart. We need to have um, right motives. So on one side, I see sometimes Christians can get angry and they can just say things that they shouldn't. On the other side, though, and I think this is actually far more prevalent, is the demonizing of conservative Christians for not accepting same-sex marriage. And a lot of times, this is happening by other Christians. You have other Christians that are demonizing conservatives, saying that they're hateful, they're bigots, etc. Now, can Christians on this issue be hateful and bigots and etc.? Well, sure, of course. But the problem is, uh, when you start labeling everybody that doesn't agree with same-sex marriage as being hateful and bigots. That's just, that's just, just... Wrong folks um that's not how you do it. You don't just label those who disagree with your position uh you know you start calling them names. We have to evaluate why don't certain people agree with same sex marriage is it not just it's not just because they hate gay people uh there's good reasons, both biblically and philosophically uh to reject it. so I think you know we need to be fair. Um, The response has to be one of love, but also of uncompromise. Where I live in the South, I see a lot of beautiful historic churches and churches that that have been here for 100 years or more. And you know, at one time, they were conservative. They held to the authority of the Bible. They held to the authority of the scriptures and as the years have gone by, they've drifted into absolute liberalism. And they've really just become, you know, a lot of them, synagogues of Satan. They reject the authority of the Bible, they reject um, the teachings of Christ, and it's just basically a social club. That grieves me. So my my, my worry is, we need to be able to defend this front um, In the church, we have to be able to do that. We have to be able to demonstrate why we think uh, homosexuality is is wrong against the scriptures. Remember, as Protestants, uh, folks, the formal principle of the Reformation was uh, sola scriptura, right? So that the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. not saying we, we can't study creeds and confessions, et cetera. In fact, J.J., uh, we call him JJ for short. So from here on out, I'll be calling him JJ. But uh, JJ, don't we go through the catechisms?
3: Yeah, we do a lot.
2: And we say the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. And JJ, JJ does a great job. And what do you think about that? What do you do? You, do you like doing the creeds? Do you like doing the prayers and that?
3: Yeah, I love it.
2: Why do you like doing that?
3: Because it's just all about God
2: all about God. That's a good answer. So, when we look at this issue, ultimately, when someone is asking, um, as Christians, can we affirm homosexual behavior, um, gay marriage, etc., I think the question we have to, to ask is, well, what does the Bible say on these issues? So, Kevin D. Young from the Gospel Coalition wrote a really good article Yesterday, one of the things that's that's really been going around is you see a lot of Christians, uh, Catholic as well, not just evangelicals, but changing their profile picture to the rainbow. So that is the gay, kind of the gay pride symbol. In fact, you saw the the president uh, light the White House up in rainbow colors, which was rather amazing. That in one you know in in one moment he's in Charleston singing Amazing Grace and preaching a sermon, pretty much, and trying to comfort people from a Christian worldview. And then later that night has the the White House lit up like a gay pride symbol and Christians defending it. And it just blows my mind, folks. I'm not trying to be offensive. Um, You know, on this show, I, I don't get into a lot of politics. Um, but I think that we have to be consistent with our Christian worldview that, um, you know, it doesn't matter what the, who the person is, whether he's the president or not. It doesn't matter what color he is. It doesn't matter how much money he has. None of that should matter. At the end of the day is, is what they are saying uh, against what the scriptures say? And if it is, if you're a Christian, you're not your own, friends. You're not your own. You are a slave of Christ, and therefore we lay down our wants, our desires, our thoughts, and we look through a biblical worldview. That has that has to be how it is. If we're not doing that, uh, then then there's, there's there's a problem. So let's look at some of these points that. Uh, Kevin DeYoung brings out, and what it is is it's 40 questions that he asks for those Christians who support homosexuality. First question, he says, how long have you believed that gay marriage is something to be celebrated? I think his point here is this is kind of a late phenomenon. I don't think in the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, you know, this was something that uh, a lot of people in America, anyway, would have been celebrating. Yes, I'm, I'm sure it existed and I'm sure it happened, but I don't think it's something that has been celebrated. I think it's something that uh, is a recent phenomenon. That doesn't mean, therefore, it's wrong just because it's recent, but, uh, you know, we have to look at the historical. Secondly, uh, he asked, what Bible verses have led you to change your model?" Uh, on this issue, what what are the Bible verses that have led you to, to to change your mind on this? Is is there a scriptural reason that we've changed our mind, or is it simply uh, because the culture has changed? Now, therefore, we're we're changing our minds. Uh, let's see, fourth, he says, what verses would you use to show that a marriage between two persons of the same sex can adequately depict Christ and the church? He goes on and he lists several other questions. So I just, I wanted to bring that up and I wanted to um, point out that when it comes to these issues, you know, we don't want to lose heart and we don't want to get angry, and frustrated. We need to be loving and we need to be gracious. But at the same time, we also need to stand firm uh, on these issues. So that's all I'll say about that. I wanted to bring on my little nephew, JJ, and we we're going to talk a little bit about God and science, because it is one of our favorite areas that we talk about, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, JJ, talk to us. Uh, Genesis 1-1. What does Genesis 1-1 say? Nice and low. In
3: the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. The earth didn't have any shape, and it was empty. Darkness was all over the surface of the world. At that time, the ocean covered the earth. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters. God said, let there be light, and there is light.
2: That's good. Good job. So we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And well, that would mean, of course, that God owns the heavens and the earth, right?
3: He owns everything.
2: He owns everything. That's right. If God created it, he's the one who gets to decide everything about it, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We're going to also be be looking a little bit about uh, some of the catechisms. You know, we talked a little bit about um, go, taking JJ through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Some people would ask, well, what you know, what is the point of that? What is the purpose of going through the catechisms? I think mean, it's because it really does help teach theology. They really get into the nitty-gritty. If I asked JJ, JJ, who is God? Or what is God? You would say what?
3: Uh, I would say that God is... The Spirit.
2: Spirit, right. How many persons are in the Godhead? Mm, three. That's right. Father?
3: Uh, Son? God Spirit.
2: That's right, the Holy Spirit. That's good. It's been a while since we've we've actually got to go through these, but uh, KJ at one time had over 60 of them memorized. And uh, it's important. It's It's very good. It's very important. Uh, He loves his Bible. He reads it constantly. Uh, And in fact, last week, JJ got to go to VBS for the first time. Talk talk a minute or so, JJ, about VBS. What did you learn? What were some of the things that surprised you as you went there that maybe you you weren't used to because you hadn't been to VBS before? Uh,
3: So, I wasn't really used to the stuff that I've. That are, were there because at my church they don't really have that stuff. So, but I was really surprised at the stuff they had, and then when I got in there, I looked all around, and then I I was really surprised.
2: What was? Do you remember what the theme of BBS was? What was the thing we were looking at?
3: Vacation Bible School.
2: That's the name of it. That's good. What was the theme though? Did we were we studying what? The uh, way of well,
3: the wise, the way of the fool.
2: The way of the wise and the way of the fool. So, what is the way of the wise?
3: The way of the wise is be, well for for be wise. Um, is like. One thing to be wise is to listen to your parents, do what they tell you to do. That's right. And to be foolish is to not listen to your parents and ignore them.
2: Yeah, that would be the fool's way. So we learned we learned a lot about uh, the way of the wise and the way of the fool. And uh, the curriculum that we went through was John Piper's uh, curriculum on uh, – Uh, For Desiring God for Kids, I think is what it's called, but it is really a great curriculum. Uh, Learned some some Bible verses, uh, went pretty in deep, yeah, in depth on uh, on some of those things. And uh, what were some of the mockers? Remember, we looked at about four different mockers. Remember?
3: Uh, yeah. Uh, so one of the fools were the godless fool, which is the fool that doesn't have any any rule in his heart for God, the simple fool believes in anything. The mocker fool, he 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 um uh, mocks the things of God and God, and the rebel contends you contends you on the evil.
2: Very good. He remembered all of those. We don't need. We seriously do not even have notes here, folks. The kid is uh, the kid is just a brilliant, brilliant kid. But we did. We looked at those things. We looked at the different types of tools. Um, Tonight, as we kind of progress in the show, Jonathan's going to be calling in here in the next couple minutes. We're going to be looking at, again, intelligent design and kind of contrast that with evolution. Now, I'll say up front, um, I think Christians can certainly make a mistake. Um, You don't want to classify everybody that believes in evolution as an atheist uh, because there are a lot lot of Christian groups that would believe in theistic evolution. And theistic evolution is just the view that God used evolution to uh, bring about the creation. And so... What we're specifically, I think, want to look at tonight would be those who not only um, accept evolution, but also would reject um, would also reject theistic evolution as well. Of course, I don't know how they would do that, but we'll, we'll get more we'll get a little deeper into that. So, what we're going to do right now, JJ, we're going to take a break. Is that that good?
3: Yeah.
2: All right. So we're going to take a take a two minute break. We're going to be back, we're going to bring my friend Jonathan McClatchy on, and then we are going to, we're going to go from there, we're going to go a little deeper into it from there. Stay with us.
0: Welcome to the One Minute, One Minute Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions.
4: Frank, is same-sex marriage wrong apart from the Bible? Apart from
5: what the Bible says, yes, I think you can make a very good argument that it's not a good idea to support same-sex marriage regardless of what the Bible says. And I think the first thing you need to point out is you need to ask people who support same-sex marriage, what is the purpose for which the government is involved in marriage at all? It's not because two people love one another. Well, uh, You know, when you go for a marriage license, they don't ask you do you love the guy or the gal or whatever the reason the state is involved in marriage is to perpetuate and stabilize society that's the reason i mean we love all sorts of people in our lives and we don't call those relationships marriage or the government doesn't call those relationships marriage the only reason the government says that marriage between a man and a woman is going to be considered marriage is because it brings great benefits to society and particularly children it perpetuates and stabilizes society here's the fundamental problem If you equate same-sex relationships with opposite-sex relationships and call them marriage, what you're doing is you're telling society that marriage has nothing to do with children because gender is irrelevant to marriage at that point. You see, where same-sex marriage is put into place, you don't have two types of marriage. You don't have same-sex marriage and natural marriage. You just have genderless marriage. And so marriage is seen by society as something that has nothing to do with children. And when marriage has nothing to do with children, there's no institution in society to protect children. That's the ultimate problem, Bobby. And the problem is becomes a, a, a bigger issue when you consider that the law is a great teacher. Many people think whatever is legal is moral, and whatever is illegal is immoral. So if you teach people that heterosexual and homosexual relationships are equally the same in terms of marriage then you're teaching them that marriage is just about coupling it's just about the romantic desires of adults and so when that happens society has lost the fundamental brick in the foundation of civilization the fundamental brick is the biological two-parent family if society does not say that's the special relationship Mm -hmm. then society is ultimately going to crumble when the bricks of of a building begin to crumble at its foundation the whole building comes down
2: Right, folks, we are back, and we are going to bring on my friend Jonathan McLaughlin. Jonathan is an apologist and frequent writer for websites such as uh, crossexamine.org, the Christian Apologetic Alliance, Christian Apologetics UK, where he presents the case for the Christian worldview. Uh, he's also a regular contributor to the leading intelligent design website Evolution News and Views. As well as uncommondescent. dot com, he holds a bachelor's degree with honors in forensic biology,
6: a master's
2: degree in evolutionary book biology, as well as a uh, master's degree in medical and bo- molecular science. So, as you can tell, he's uh, he's a brilliant guy. Jonathan, are you there?
4: Yes, I am. How are you, Devin?
2: I am doing. I am doing pretty well. How's uh, now, where, where is it exactly you're from? What, what exactly part uh, are you from over there?
4: Um, from the UK, I I was raised in Glasgow, and uh, I'm currently living in the northeast of England. Well, we
2: are we are really glad to have you on the phone. Um, speak speak loud <laughs> and slowly, just so we can make sure we get you. We we're, were having some uh issues with our Skype, but I think we're I think we're pretty much good to go. So Jonathan, talk to us a little bit. How did you get involved? Uh, well I guess first of all, how did you become a Christian? Were you did you grow up in a Christian home?
4: Yeah, I, I was raised in a Christian home. Um my father was an elder in the church I was raised in. I um in the church and I became a Christian on the 3rd of March 1996, um, which was uh, about 19 years ago. And um, yeah, yeah I, um, I continued to walk with the Lord since then. I was baptized um, towards the end of high school, I think. And I went to university and uh, began to get interested in apologetics and intellectual and rational defense of the Christian worldview. Um, I began to interact with people of all kinds of uh, world need persuasions, um, both uh, atheist background, Christian background, Muslim background, Mormon background, um sort of witnesses, you know. Um and I became interested in questions pertaining to why um is truth refers to any other world view. Um, and then I also um, during my years as an undergraduate studying um, biology um, at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, I was also exposed to the molecular wonders of the cell and I uh, became very convinced that the macromolecular machines that I was seeing and researching the um, cell were not the product of a stochastic, unguided list process of chance and necessity, natural selection and random genetic variation, but were in fact better explained as the product of intelligent causality. And so so, so that for me really compelled me to um, um, have great um, confidence in the um, validity of theism um and also as, um, as I explored science further, I um, became acquainted with the fine tuning arguments and cosmological arguments and so forth, which seemed to complement the evidence that I was observing in the whole realm very strongly as well for I think cumulatively uh for with theistic world Um so and yeah, I, I was always often baffled as an undergraduate that how you could go through a you know, four year university-level program in science, and biology in particular, and and, uh, and, and and be an atheist at the other end because the evidence, um, as always, seems to be very clear. We, uh, there, there are very clear um, cases of, of design knowledge features in biology that are very, very difficult to explain from within a, a materialist paradigm.
2: all right well and and one of the things i i appreciate you Jonathan about you Jonathan is that you have a wide diverse interest in christian apologetics you um you have a debate
4: coming up is that correct uh yeah i have a have a debate um coming up business on the sixteenth of August in London with uh, dr Shipier ali in many with regard as the leading intellectual defender of Islam in the world today, the formidable debater, um, and we're going to be getting um, off in London um, at the Woolwich Common Community Centre, and we're going to be debating the topic of if I'm not like Not Peace or Trinity, Peace of Course Concepts." Um, so, yeah. Well, that's that's going to be really.
2: Really interesting, and and Shamir Ali really is uh, one of the top apologists around for for Islam, and so it's going to be it's going to be very interesting uh, to see exactly how that debate goes. What's the topic again?
4: It's uh, the nature of God, tahit uh, versus Trinity. So the idea of the absolute oneness of Allah, um, and whereas Doctrine of the trinity the christian notion that one divine being said, um, is comprised of three divine co-eternal persons for that essence is and completely um so we're going to be discussing her, which is more moral and rational to
7: accept
2: okay Well oh, that's great that'll be that that that'll be good Let's um, let's kind of jump into our, to our, our topic then a little bit. I also know you, you do some writing with cross examined uh and that as well. So you're 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 not just uh kind of a one man show, but you, you've got a lot of different uh a lot of different interests in that. So that's that's really cool. So let's talk a little bit about why should Christians care about studying uh some of these issues with with uh, intelligent design,
4: why, why, why even bother with apologetics? Sure, why even bother with apologetics? Well, um, I think uh, it's tremendously important as Christians that we are intellectually responsible. We have an intellectually responsible foundation for our worldview. Um, there are many different worldviews out there, and each of them claims about reality, and each of them is believed by. People and so we have to show why Christianity is true um, and other worldviews which are which have equally devoted um, adherence. Why, why is Christianity true and those other worldviews are false? Um, and I think as Christians, we are commanded to love the Lord our God with not just our hearts but also our mind, our intellect, and we are commanded in scripture in the Proverbs chapter fourteen verse fifteen and we, it says simple man leaves everything but the prudent gives thought to his steps. So we are told to have a reasonable faith and first Thessalonians 5 21 capability to test everything for back to the gives. So we're supposed to be discerning in scripture. we're so supposed to have an intellectually robust world view. And first Peter three fifteen is another example where it says in your heart honor Christ the Lord holy Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you. To give a reason for the hope that lies within you. But doing so with gentleness and respect. Um, and in uh, Second um chapter ten, um, and Paul speaks about how we as Christians demolish arguments and er- every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Um, so there. It's apologetics to has utility in evangelism uh so um, we want to call others to um accept christ as as their savior and to accept this free gift of salvation through the blood of Christ shed on the cross and um, and but when we're calling people to, to do that, we need to show them why the it's reasonable to do so We do that when the arguments. And, and and yeah, sure. We can't use our we can't rule the apologists to use our the rule of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts. So we can remove the blocks, um, and we and um, and close our mouths as it were, uh, because the the Holy Spirit is able to use mechanisms and vehicles, and not kind of you know, that's appropriate to use argument. As part of the instrumentation, part of the instrumentality of bringing people, drawing them unto himself. So, and arguments are, are, I think, in, in a, in a, not a blind study, but a, a rational study. I mean, John said that he wrote his gospel so that, um, so that he might believe, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And the, the book is chock full of examples of the miracles that Jesus performed in earth, which were given as signs and evidences that would convince people of this divine credential. Um, so um, as to the topic of this particular discussion, which is intelligent design, which is a very specific um, area, um, why is that important? Well, I think um, it, it, the, the neo-Darwinian camp, which um, is really the antithesis of the intelligent design paradigm, would maintain that we are the product of an unguided, stochastic, blind, mindless mechanism of enhanced necessity. Natural selection acted on random variation um, to produce all the diversity and complexity of life that we see on Earth today. And if that is the case, then I think you run into some serious. Not just theological but philosophical problems And if you are if you subscribe to uh traditional theistic world such as christianity um for example um not even God can direct things which divine its very nature is undirected to the extent that evolution is there would mean um it can't be described as theistic so the, 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 word, the 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 idea, whole idea of evolution it really um is I think in coherent because to the extent that evolution is theistic is not Darwinian, the extent that it's Darwinian it's not theistic because um the, the whole point of um evolution as proposed by Charles Darwin and um and and and, even, and, and his modern incarnations, um neo-darwinism modern synthesis and so forth. Um the the, the whole point is that the natural selection can serve as a designer substitute. It can explain the appearance of design without recourse to a designer. And um, we, we obviously believe as Christians that God has left traces and hallmarks and, and, and evidences of his work in nature. And for example, in Romans chapter 1, verses uh, 18 through um, 25, the, the section, um, it says, Verse twenty that um that that God has made it plain to people um for his integration of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power and his divine nature are being clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And um, and it says that uh, that people um they they suppressed truth and righteousness and um, if if um, if, there's, if God is taking great pains to um, to hide His activity and to cover His tracks, as it were, then I think that leads to serious um, problem problems. Um, and so, so, so the, the, these I think are the main um, issues that are taking in the debate. So it, is, are, are we result of a mind of a, of a purposeful, um, goal-directed? process of intelligent design or are we the product of an unguided blind process that doesn't have other mind. Uh, so I think that's the key issue that's a library debate.
2: Right, okay. Let's let's look at this. Um explain and kinda give us a, a a definition. JJ, do you wanna I'm gonna let my my nephew, I'm gonna let him ask ask this question here.
4: What is what is that question there?
3: What is I D
4: so what, is, why what is intelligent, intelligent design? <laughs> well, intelligent design is defined as the idea that there are certain patterns in nature which are best explained by an um, intel- intelligent cause rather than an unguided process. Um, so it's, it's a positive inferential argument, um, basically it's predicated upon what is philosophers of science was called the abductive method of, the, of scientific inquiry the abductive method in basically it, um, is the inference to the best explanation for multiple competing the So hypotheses So, um, the thing 19th century geologist Charles Royale, in he, his principles of geology um, which the subtitled be in the attempt to understand changes in earth surface, which are the earth's surface because of con's mode and operations he basically insisted that if you want to explain events in the remote past, one should let one's present experience, cause and effect guide their search for the best explanation. Um, and so, for example, if you want to explain the presence of volcanic ash on an island, then you favour the volcanic eruption hypothesis over the earthquake or the flood hypothesis because in all of our all of our experience, of the cause and effect structure of the world, all over. These experience you might say, um, the volcanic ash is known to come from volcanic eruptions and only from volcanic eruptions, not from floods and not from. Birds. And so, based upon the inductive method, you would infer that, that is the most causally adequate or the best explanation for that particular phenomenon. When it comes to explaining um, a phenomenon such as um, biological information, now in all of our experience, all of our uniform repeated experience, of the constant effect structure of the world, we know of only one type of cause, one category of explanation, which is known to be constantly efficacious to this um, phenomenon of information. Whenever we find information in our everyday experience, whether it's in the form of a, um, a, a newspaper headline or a paragraph on the pages of a book or a um, or um, a hieroglyphic inscription, or a computer programming script, or what have you. We know that um, when you trace it back to its origin, it's back to its source, it uniformly originates with an intelligent cause. And so, when we find information in the realm of biology, in the form uh, which which is embedded, instantiated um, in, in uh, the hereditary molecules of DNA and RNA, it follows that the most Plausible, the most um, efficacious, the most adequate explanation for that information is the to of a virtue and intelligent cause. So it's basically um, we're often um, accused of making an argument from from ignorance, um, an argument um, based upon what we don't know rather than what we do know. We're we're told that intelligent design basically is offered as a placeholder for the gaps in our scientific knowledge. So we can't explain it by natural mechanisms, therefore we just plug in um, an intelligent designer or god to fill in the gap. Uh, and this is something that's called the god of the gaps objection. Whereas intelligent design really doesn't work in that. Basically we're making a positive inferential argument based not on what we don't know, but what we do know uh, about the nature of, of causes and effects and what types of causes are necessary to produce certain types of effects. Um, for example, when you when we're trying to explain um, the origins of developmental pathways, um, we know that or something like a metamorphosis in from, from a caterpillar to butterfly, so that whatever is the common phenomenon, at least I would argue, has to be something which is fundamentally directed, um, because if you're a, a butterfly of your caterpillar often you have yeah. to undergo um, mm-hmm. and, and through the crystalline stage where your tissues mm-hmm. are, are disintegrated into a type of soup and then you are and then you have a, a second body which develops mm-hmm. you, yeah. and there's um, that that kind of process requires a goal-directed um, phenomenon. So I think that's that will to account for within the new Darwinian paradigm. Likewise, um, explaining developmental pathways seems to require a process. Explaining the origin of information, likewise, I would argue, requires a goal-directed process. Um, so intelligent design um, is a, and to, to sum up, is a positive inference based on standard principles of science-based reasoning. Um, it's, employs the same methods used by evolutionary biologists, where you let the present be the key to the past. We know what types of causes explains certain types of effects, and we, and we extrapolate back from the past. And sure, there might come up other mechanisms which explain these phenomena in the future, but based upon what we know at the present time, intelligence can explain the data any of the competing contenders. Okay, I, w- I want to play a clip, Jonathan.
2: Uh, it was it's a, it's a clip from Bill Nye, and he's talking about the warning, kind of setting a warning of why we should not allow creationism, or he would say creationism and ID are the same things, and I'll we'll talk about that because uh, we need to make the distinction. But I want to I want to play this clip, and I want you to uh, to kind of give us your thoughts because I think what's, what's going to happen is people are going to see. Um, Bill and I is not really talking about what you just heard as we asked Jonathan what is intelligent design. So here's the clip, and then, Jonathan, I'll bring you back on and ask you to respond.
8: Denial of evolution is unique to the United States. I mean, we are the world's most advanced technological. So, I mean, you could say Japan. But generally, the United States is where most of the innovation still happens. People still move to the United States. Uh, And that's largely because of the intellectual capital, we have the, the general understanding of science. When you have a portion of the population that doesn't believe in that, it holds everybody back, really. Evolution is the fundamental idea in all of life science, in all of biology. It's like, it's very much analogous to trying to do geology without believing in tectonic plates. You're just not going to get the right answer. Your whole world is just going to be a mystery instead of an exciting place. As my old professor Carl Sagan said, when you're in love, you want to tell the world. So once in a while I get people that really, that, or that claim they don't believe in evolution. And my response generally is, well, so why not? Really, why not? Your world just becomes fantastically complicated when you don't believe in evolution. I mean, you, here are these ancient dinosaur bones or fossils. Here is a... Radioactivity here are distant stars that are just like the our star, but that are a different point in their life cycle The idea of deep time of this the billions of years uh explains so much of the world around us. If you try to ignore that your your world view just becomes crazy it's just uh untenable in self inconsistent and I say to the grown ups if you want to Deny evolution and live in your in your uh world that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe. that's fine, but don't make your kids do it because we need them. We need scientifically literate voters and taxpayers for the future. We need people that can uh we need engineers that can build stuff, solve problems It's just a really hard thing it's It's really a hard thing you know in another couple centuries though that, that world view i'm sure will be just won't exist it's, it's, there's no evidence for it
2: so. okay so you you know you kind of hear the same typical kind of stuff but um yeah you know, there's no evidence for it you no know? um it's going to be gone in a couple centuries what are some of your thoughts as you hear that
4: yeah, I mean he's clearly there conflating um uh he basically he's he's lumping together everyone who is a skeptic of evolution with uh young earth creationists. And sure, many intelligent design proponents are young earth creationists, but intelligent design doesn't commit you to young earth creation. And to the point, hey, um, hey Jonathan. Hey Jonathan. Real, real quick, yeah. just so people can understand. Explain kind of the different models
2: between old Earth creation, kind of the different views within old Earth creation, young Earth creation, and theistic evolution. That way, people can kind of understand the contrasting views.
4: Sure. Well, theistic evolution basically is the idea that you have a God using this natural the, the natural mechanisms to bring about the creation of the different organisms, the different species. Um, and I, I never really understand, as I mentioned before, what theistic evolution actually is, because in what sense are people saying that evolution is theistic? It's just, it, it, I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's like. It, is it supposed to be some sort of adjective? Is, it, is evolution supposed to be... Um, uh it, 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 theistic in some sense and what sense is it theistic how is how is um evolution affected by the modifier theistic it it seems to me to be completely umher um, because as soon as you start thinking its guided you're into and design um so the, the younger creationism is basically the idea uh, that um not only is evolution wrong um, and um no, no, we can like, not explain the natural processes, but also the whole notion from that history is wrong, plus the notion of the antiquity of the earth is wrong. So basically, our creationism derives from the text of Genesis 1 and a particular interpretation of the text of Genesis 1 and argues that uh, the Genesis 1 commits Christians to affirming a very... Young age of the earth within the space within um, the span of approximately 6,000 years or so. Um, it, it was um, basically popularized in 1650 by the Irish bishop James Usher, and he basically calculated that the earth was created in the year 4004 BC. And so, so that's during um, and um then there's older creationism, which, and there's different views within uh, the older creationists. Um, and there's a progressive creationists, there's the age creationists, there's gap theorists, and, and uh, the thing that unites them is the notion at uh, which is consistent with the consensus view on modern scientists that the Earth is, in fact, very ancient, uh, approximately 4.6 billion years old. And the universe is approximately 13.7 billion years old. And uh, the um, people subscribe to a the gap theory, for example, that, maintain that there's a, a gap between Genesis 1 and Genesis 1-2, and there's a radical recreation that takes place after that. I don't subscribe to that model. I think it's very difficult to maintain that position, uh, to, to maintain the, the, the whole gap theory notion um, and there's the uh, day age theorists, which would maintain that uh, that each of the days is um, it, it relates to an, a, a geological epoch, if you will, um, or an age, um, and is not necessarily to be interpreted as a, a literal 24 hour period. Uh, there are uh, and various other strikes that will as well. Um, so, so I mean, there's, a, there's a wide spectrum. And to say that everyone who's critical of evolutionary theory is necessarily uh or my creationist is simply mistaken. Uh, and you don't even have to be a Christian to be skeptical of the efficacy of the New Darwinian mechanisms of evolution, or to be skeptical even of the of the efficacy of unguided processes. I mean, there are people who are not Christians or even necessarily religious. Who take this view. Uh, for example, uh, Michael Benson, who's uh, a, a geneticist, and who wrote a, a famous book called uh, Evolution and Ethereum Crisis, and who doesn't claim any particular evolution. Um, there is uh, David Berlinsky, who is a philosopher, mathematician, uh, who, uh, who is very skeptical of um, the efficacy of, of Darwinism, and gives his back some credit to of design. He is um, agnostic religiously. Uh, Steve Fuller, who is a philosopher, sociologist at the University of Warwick, is um, is an agnostic and self-described secular humanist. Uh, Bradley Watson, um who is at the University of Colorado Boulder, um, is a uh, is an atheist. Who is um, at least sympathetic to the arguments for intelligent design, um, and there are there are others as well. Uh, so, um, you, you, one one can be skeptical of, of the ability of evolution to explain the complexity and diversity of life without actually uh, subscribing to any other views or um, even belief in the Bible. So he's really just conflating a lot of ideas when really whole issue is a lot more than he wants to represent it as. Um but um, I, I think it is it, really quite condescending on the part of Bill Nye to um to treat everyone who is skeptical of, of these mechanisms as basically being empty science uh when it's just clearly um, not true. There are many very well potential scientists who are And skeptics of of the organism. Um, And for example, to the Biological Institute, uh, a molecular biologist who did his postdoc work at Cambridge, or um, uh, Richard Sternberg, who has two PhDs, um, one in evolutionary biology and one in systems biology, who is a skeptic of of Darwinism and a supporter of intelligent design. He used to work at the Smithsonian Institute and at the National Institute for Health, the NIH. Um And uh, there, there are many others as well. So um, I, I, I just think he he's really been quite condescending and not really um, representing to his audience the actual situation.
2: Right. Right. Okay. Let me let me go ahead and give the number out uh for those who may want to call in. Um number is 760-542-3907. 760-542-3907. We want to hear hear uh hear from you guys. Uh, maybe you agree with um With Jonathan, uh, maybe you don't. Maybe uh, maybe you're a Roman Catholic who believes in evolution, and you don't see any discrepancy between uh, belief in God and uh, the theory of evolution, or or you know whatever. So call in. We want to hear from you. I think Jonathan's big thing is he he challenges Darwinism basically on I think scientific grounds. Um, I think is and I think that's a good route to go. I, I do think. Um, you know the Bible does tell us. The Bible does inform us. Um, I think there's there's ways that the Bible um, sets some parameters when dealing with Genesis, just based on the history, you know the narrative and what it is and being a stor- historical book. Uh, but you know, good people disagree. Uh, there's this. There's, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a young earth creationist. Uh, I remember when I first came to the Lord? Uh, you know, what I studied. The majority of the time was the issue of uh, creation versus evolution, and during that time, I really got into Ken Ham and and Answers in Genesis, and really just thought they were, you know, they were they were the the, the best groups. Um, I think as I've as I've maybe. I don't want to sound condescending, but I think I don't know how to say it. Other than as as I have matured in my views, uh, I am still, you know, strong young Earth creationist. uh, But I don't view the old Earth creationists as 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 the enemy. I just don't. Um, There's a lot of brilliant men. You know, one of my one of my heroes of the faith, Dr. Norman Geisler. Um, was on the the council of Biblical Inerrancy in, in seventy eight, you know, ICBI and et cetera, and uh, you know, he holds to an old Earth, and several several leading apologists do. So um, I don't I don't find these men to necessarily be compromisers. Uh, they don't agree with with uh, biological evolution, et cetera. So. What I, what I would personally like to see is, you know, the young earth creationists and the old earth creationists being able to come together and being able to work together. Yes, we have deep differences, big differences. Um, cause it goes more than just, you know, the age of the earth. It goes with Noah's flood. It goes with, you know, how do you do build hominids, the geological call, et cetera. So there's a lot of things, uh, that divide, you know, but I think we're, we're a lot more together than we are apart. Um, I think a lot of times, Jonathan, I mean, you, you step in and correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I see from my camp, from the Young Earth Creationist camp, a lot of times what I see is um, a lot of times just claiming that those who don't hold an old earth are, are compromisers, and they may not be the most nuanced. The, the Young Earth Creationists that I've run into, a lot of them, not very nuanced in a lot of their views and their opinions and it's kinda of like um they're just uh, the, you know a straightforward reading of the Bible which is which is good. Again, I'm a young earth creationist. Um, so the the a lot of young earth people will will accuse old earth creationists of denying the Bible or denying inerrancy. And then on the other side I see a lot of old earth creationists uh just claiming young earth creationists hate science or something, and I don't think that's fair either. So I think there's, there's a middle ground. Uh, I think one of, my, one of my favorite guys on this topic is Jay Weil, and, and we've had Jay on the show. And uh, Dr. Weil has a, you know, a PhD, I think, in nuclear chemistry, and he's written several of the books uh, for the Apologia Curriculum. He's a strong young earth creationist, uh, but at the same time, he appreciates a lot of what the old earth creationists do and uh, what they contribute. And so, you know, I would like to see, you know, while we can firm, hold, firmly hold our beliefs, I just think both sides, um, we have to be more gracious. We have to be more gracious with each other. Jonathan, what are, what are some of your thoughts on that?
4: Yeah, I agree. And I think that's one of the advantages of our the design community, which has been described in the past as a, as a big tent. Though, which uh, the, the design doesn't really say anything about the age of the earth. You can be an creation, creationist, you can be a general creationist, and so comes to this recognition of the evidence of design, not just in biology, but in cosmology and so forth. And um, so, yeah, I, I think together and and working together on this issue i am not have um, an in geophysics or in, sorry, in, uh, technology you know i'm a biologist, so i i don't uh, spend a lot of time debating the whole areas um relating to geophysics and so forth but um i i think it's and um, mm-hmm. uh, i i i think it's to really beautiful uh, scientists uh Work together on these the in that community, even coming from different views on the edge of the Earth issue, which I, I think is a is a completely separate issue which needs to be addressed in and of itself.
2: Yeah, and I, I think um, you know I think when dealing, especially in the secular arena. You know folks uh, for, for the youngest creationists there, I just don't believe they're gonna teach biblical creationism, flood geology, that stuff. Well, it's not gonna happen um I think the best right. approach the best approach is to deal with them on the scientific ground, dealing like with with biology, right so right. instead of having to get into the age of the earth and carbon dating and whether dinosaurs lived with humans. I just don't think that's we don't wanna do right. that. let's let's do and, like and uh, I, anything, you know,
4: I, all these other Yep, go ahead. I, I think you know, especially if you've got expertise in an area, then you should approach that discipline with um, an attitude of graciousness and humility. Well I'm I'm not training geophysics. Um and then when uh, someone like Andrew Snelling comes along because they are a creationist or a PhD in geology. Um, you know, I um, I have to have an attitude of humility. You know, I I um, I'm in no position to um, to uh, argue with them or to uh, from a scientific point of view because I'm just not schooled in those areas. So I I think I think it's important that and, and in the Christian community. We we need to, get to brothers and sisters
2: and work together and unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ,
4: even when I have different
2: views on some of those more peripheral issues. Yeah, I think that's I think that's good. I just we have a big enough front to, to deal with and enough issues going on. I think um I think that's you know, we had um kind of to remember the gentleman's name, wrote the book on genetic entropy. Trying to remember his name. I he bought was his John book. Baffert. Baffert. Yes. yes, yes. He came to to SES where, where my seminary is and did a talk on that. And um I specifically asked him, you know, what about people like Fuzz Rana? Reasons to believe. And he said, you know, I have no problem working with him and, and old Rest Creationists because you know, though we agree on, uh, we disagree on the time, the timing of when did God, you know, create, um, the bigger question that we both agree on is, did God create? So I think, you know, if we focus on the age of the earth and some of those intramural debates, um, you know, after a person gets saved, I think that's just wiser than um, making that the gospel issue. Um, And I'm not saying... think A lot of you guys do that, but some, some young Earth guys do.
4: Yeah, I, I certainly see the whole intelligence design debate as being a more fundamental issue than the age of the Earth. So that's why I choose to major on that rather than these more peripheral matters that Christians can respectfully and thoughtfully disagree with each other on.
2: Yeah, it was frustrating because the 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 week after the Bill so the Bill Nye Kin Am debate had I don't even know how many millions of people watching. I mean a lot of people watching. Um, and it was basically two guys that were really two caricatures of each position. And the week after (laughs) you have you have uh, William Lane Craig and Sean Carroll who are both, you know, top in the field. So it was, and, and nobody really, you know, not not nearly as many people would watch that. Debate. So, you know, it's it's frustrating, and I think it's I think it's I don't think it's right that as as believers that we just frame it as you know the young earth position is the only position. You know, yeah, that's the position I agree with. I I'm convinced of that, but there are all you know there are a lot of smart Christians that are better than me that would disagree and have, you know, reasons to do so. So I think, you know, we have to be honest about that. Had it been, you know, a different model, had had Stephen Meyer gone up there and debated Bill Nye uh, on just, you know, the in- information theory, et cetera, the whole world would have seen how weak Darwinism is.
4: Yeah, I I think the Bill Nine Ken Ham debate is really a, a huge missed opportunity. Uh I mean, what an opportunity to to tell such a huge audience about uh, the tremendous evidence that has emerged in biology for design, um and, and from other fields like cosmology and so forth. But uh, Ken Ham really majored on for, for such a stage of the earth, and I think he could have done a far better job majoring on uh, these fundamental, more
2: fundamental matters of uh, the detectability of design in nature. So let's 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 look at the next uh, let's look at the next topic as time is getting away from us. Uh, I love the issue of ID. It's it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Folks, again, if you want to call in, seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine Oh seven. We want to hear from you and we'll probably take a break here in about five minutes. But, uh, Johnson talk to us, uh, when contrasting ID with, um, with kind of the general theory of evolution, looking at the origin of life. Now, a lot of evolutionists are going to say, um, origin of life has nothing to do with the theory of evolution. Um, looking at those models, um, what do you think, what, what, what model do you think uh, is stronger regarding, for example, the origin of life? Because it's kind of where you have to start. Um, I think probably the origin of the universe may be more of a philosophical issue, uh, but um, with the origin of life, let's start there. Contrast both models for us and tell us why you think uh, the ID model is, is superior.
4: Well, I don't think any of the models really or, or with respect think any of the naturalistic models with respect to the origin of life really uh, are convincing at all. Um, I, I just don't think any of them come close to explaining uh, the phenomenon of life. And they all seem to fall short at a number of hurdles, in particular the uh, the origins of biological information. Um, and uh, If you want to explain life, you have to explain the origins of Proteins are a very um, important component of macromolecular machines, which which are responsible for undertaking many of the biological processes that go on within the cell. And uh, when when you look at the um, the um, empirically discerned literature uh, of stable and functional protein folds within the uh, vast Array of combinatorial possibilities, the combinatorial sequence space, if you will. The ratio of functional to non-functional sequences appears to be astronomically small, which I think is best explained within an um, intelligent design paradigm rather than a uh, you know, Darwinian or naturalistic um, uh, paradigm, because um, uh, if, because the, the even if you explain uh, the origins of the amino acids with the right um, chirality or handedness well, because all the amino acids found in organic proteins have to have the right, have to have a homochirality. chirality, I be in nice. mind, they're all left-handed, there's left-handed and right-handed uh, isomers and each of amino acids, and um, if, if you just reduce them randomly, then you normally would end up with something like a resuming mixture, so where you have a, a random 50 mixture of left right-handed amino acids, which is no use. But even even if you explain that hurdle, you you still have to explain the origins of proteins and and thing is that they're that it's very difficult to stumble upon these functional and stable protein folds. And there, if you're explaining, for example, uh, um, and uh, proteins basically have a, a, a primary. Um, structure, which is the sequential arrangement of the amino acids. And then these amino acids uh, then control the protein uh, collapses into three dimensional conformation. So you have the secondary um, structure, which are the VISA um, sheets uh, and the alpha helices, and the tertiary structures, um, and which are like domains and um, proteins, and then these may pack together to form the quaternary structure of the protein. And these proteins are dynamic structures which um, contribute to um, these uh, machines which are involved in processes like DNA replication or transcription or translation or, um, or involved in um, motility or, uh, or things like that. And uh, it, it seems that to explain the origins of biological, protein, uh, biological proteins, and within the time allowed is prohibitively difficult, because they are um, they, they seem to be so uh, rare within the vast array of contour possibilities, ways that you could range with amino acids. Douglas Axe, for example, in 2004, published a, a well-known paper in the Journal of Molecular Biology, um, where uh, basically he took a, a domain from um, an enzyme complex called beta-lactamase, which is involved in conferring antibiotic resistance to certain bacteria, and he performed what's called a site-directed experiment, where he randomly altered the protein and looked at. And basically, he, he in the paper he tries to work out what out of all the possibilities of ways you could range this amino acid residue, which is 150 amino acids long how many of are actually um, functional and how many are and so he calculated the rate of non-functional sequences as one in as uh, ten to the seventh power, which is um, um astronomically small. Um, and then when you factor in the the fact that many maximum electric machines require many separate proteins to act in concert with one another, then the probability is just multiply exponentially. Um, so, I, I think that um, the origin of proteins and the origin of micro-machines and the origins of um, DNA and RNA um, and so forth are are, are are extreme problems with modern age, origin of life models. Um, of, of course, there's a well-known paradox uh, that needs to be explained. With respect to the origin of life, where the DNA is encoding for proteins, but then proteins are involved in the machinery which uh, directs the synthesis of new DNA and through the DNA replication machinery. This research is in the which came first. And so, origin of life researchers have to proposed that the um, original situation was what one might call an RNA world, where you have um, RNA serving and the information medium, just as DNA would, the RNA also um, has the ability to perform um, a capping uh, uh, sense of substitute uh, some of the functions of enzymes. Um, so basically, um, it's proposed that an RNA world precedes the world that we now see in the story, the DNA protein world.
8: Um, right.
4: that model itself I think that model itself I think has a lot of problems. Um, because uh, RNA for one thing is uh, far less stable than DNA. Um D extra two frame and of it, Um and also um it's um single which makes, makes it uh more which makes it less stable. And also even even if the RNA world model works, um, which I, I'm very skeptical of. Is you still have to explain how you get from the RNA world to the modern in a 13 world, and you also have to explain um, uh, you have to explain the origins of the information of that RNA. So uh, there, there seems to be um, serious problems for the naturalistic explanations of the origin of life. And I think it
2: A break for a few minutes. We'll shift gears. I'm going to play a couple more clips for you to uh, respond to, get your thoughts on. Folks, I'd like to uh, again give the number out: 760-542-3907. 760-542-3907. Would love to hear your, uh, your opinion. Of course, you don't have to agree with us to call in, but would love to call in and have some reasonable. Rational Dialogue. I am your host, Devin Falou, and this is my nephew, JJ. JJ. He is with us, and we are hosting the show. We're having a great time drinking a little Mountain Dew and some Kool-Aid and uh, having a good time. So, stay with us. We're going to take a break for a few minutes, give uh, people a chance to call in, get Jonathan a chance to to get himself a drink and catch his breath, and we will be back after this. <laughs>
7: Reformed theology is biblical Christianity come into its own. And by that I mean, Reformed theology is a desire to express biblical truth in its fullness in a biblical way. I love the way that B.B. Warfield once summarized Reformed theology in saying that Reformed theology believes that God saves sinners. What we mean, first of all, is that we have a high view of God. We believe that God is sovereign that he is the ruler of all things by the word of his power, that he is the providential Lord of nations and of history. We have a high view of God's holiness, and we believe that that's one of the messages of the Bible that needs to be reemphasized, not just for discipleship, but for evangelism. We believe that message is vital to really sharing the gospel, and until a sinner comes to grips with the fact that he is rejecting a holy and sovereign God, the sinner doesn't realize the predicament that he's in. And we believe that God saves sinners. We're not people that are desperately sick. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're not really nice people with a few things that need to be cleaned up about us. We are sinners to the core. We also believe that God saves, not that God makes us savable, not that God makes us able to save ourselves, but that God actually does the saving, that it is he who reaches out and draws his children to himself sovereignly and savingly. Reformed theology is simply attempting to do justice to what the Bible says about God, about salvation, about sinners and about the totality of the Christian life and God's plan in this world. And so we seek to be, first and foremost, biblical Christians, Christians that believe the Bible, whose thoughts are molded after biblical teaching, and who live the Bible. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church ultimately... which I am called to be a member, is what we call the invisible church,
6: whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints, with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time.
7: For today's special offer, visit RenewingYourMind.org.
5: This is John MacArthur inviting you to join me for Portraits of Grace. Men, have you ever been at work and realized you forgot to shave? That's a good illustration of what it means to hear God's Word and forget to respond. James said, if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looked at his natural face in a mirror. This is not some casual glance either, but a careful observant stare. Yet even a long, hard look is worthless if you walk away and forget what you saw. If you fail to respond, because the image reflected in the mirror will soon fade when you don't make the corrections. Perhaps you've been putting off something that you know God's Word is instructing you to do. If so, don't delay. This is John MacArthur trusting that you'll look into the Word of God and become a true portrait of grace.
2: Welcome back. I'm your host, Devin Pellew, and i got my little nephew here with me. J.J. And we are having a ball here hosting our 100th episode of Theology Matters. 100th episode, folks. That is a lot of years in the making. Um, We have some great stuff lined up for you guys. Uh, Every October, we specifically focus on the Protestant Reformation here at Theology Matters. We are unashamedly uh Protestant and uh we like to look at we like to look at the that, that issue a little in depth uh in October. So we got some really good shows planned. We've done basically we've done two years in a row. Uh, so if you go to our Facebook page, uh Theology Matters with the Blues, you can find uh previous shows that we've done. I, I put a whole link of uh, the shows on the Reformation that we've done. Uh, we've held several debates, uh, uh, including for uh, Torah, Justification, etc., and pleased to announce, I got confirmation today, that this coming October, uh, I know we will have at least one more debate, or one uh, debate for sure, uh, dealing with whether or not um, the Roman Catholic Church is the infallible church uh, that Christ established here on earth. And it's actually my two, two of my good friends, and they're actually uh, ladies, actually females. I thought it would be really awesome to uh, be able to get a couple of women on here on the show that do apologetics, not just men, just to encourage some of you ladies. And uh, that will be a good discussion. Plan to have a lecture, uh, or not lecture, but a guy our friend Tony come in and talk about uh, the canon of scripture, how we got the canon. Uh and we hope to do at least uh add another debate. So we're looking at um, possible Arminian verse reformed on that. So stay in touch with us. Uh Jonathan, my friend Jonathan, uh you do you deal a lot with the reformed theology topic as well, is that right?
4: Yeah, I, I'm interested in uh, the doctrines of grace and, and the sovereignty of God, and how it intersects with the human freedom so that fascinates me.
2: Oh, amen. I will say a hearty amen to that, my friend. Probably actually uh, looking forward to bringing you on. Probably have you do a talk for us in uh, in October with Reformation Month. Have have a uh, have you do a talk, or maybe even be able to, to set up a debate with. Uh, with one of our Arminian brothers. But let's... Uh, yeah, it'd let's be fun. Your... Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to play this uh, clip, uh, it's just a minute or so, two minutes, of Richard Dawkins. And um, he's, he's talking again about ID evolution. Uh wanted to get your thoughts to that. I just want people who maybe are not familiar with the issue to see what kind of some of the leading components of... Uh, of evolution, and I have to say, so here is Richard Dawkins talking for a couple of minutes, and then I want to get Jonathan's uh, thoughts on this
6: of all the issues human society faces today religion remains one of the most divisive and destructive. I hope you find this film on it interesting. There are lots of people who have been brought up in some religion or other, are unhappy in it, don't believe it, or are worried about the evils that are done in its name. There are people who feel vague yearnings to leave their parents' religion and wish they could, but just don't realise that leaving is an option. I've written a book called The God Delusion, aimed at those people. The book inspired a short documentary series for Channel 4 on the dangers of religion called Root of All Evil. Now we've made a single film called The God Delusion from that series. The film explores a world increasingly polarised by religion with the atrocities of 9-11 and 7-7 still raw memories. In America's Midwest and in Israel, it became apparent how prone otherwise sane people are to extremism once they indulge in faith belief without evidence when they give up reason this film takes a hard look at the very concept of faith how it behaves like a kind of brain virus infecting generations of young minds how it perpetuates outdated and dubious moral values religion deserves to be scrutinized far more critically than it normally is I feel passionately about this. If the film does just one thing, I hope it encourages people to start questioning why the strange, distorted mindset of religious faith should automatically demand, and usually receive, our society's respect.
2: All right, so that's Richard Dawkins, and he's we're just a bunch of deluded morons. Jonathan, what do you think? <laughs>
4: um I certainly think that people should always question ideas, and should agree to always question ideas. Um I agree with him that uh ideas don't automatically have a right to be respected. Um I think that uh, people have a right to be respected, but ideas don't and um ideas should be Uh, respected or not respected on their own merits. And um, I I certainly think um, that it's an intellectually persuasive and defensible worldview, uh, which um, I think uh, can be supported by means of arguments and reason, uh, evidence and logic and so forth so um i i, I not um, agree with the premise of what he said that um are really um based on uh, superstition and non reasonable uh, non reasonable um uh, approaches
2: one one of the one of the things that uh I remember this happened probably a year ago. Um people are familiar with Eugenie Scott's uh Center for mm. National Center for Science Education out there in Berkeley, California. And uh, pretty much the sole purpose of the group is to keep the ID and creation science out of schools. And so um I remember they they were they were doing something they had posted a a lecture that uh Ken Miller had done on uh he, he's a professor at brown university brilliant brilliant man um but regarding evolution and uh you know Jeanie Scott is a well known atheist and there's a lot of people on the in the group that are um but it was so so funny that they post this uh you know the video of ken uh Ken Miller talking about a particular aspect of evolution. And uh, they were all singing his praises and, you know, talking about how stupid, uh, you know, people that believed in God were, uh, specifically the God of the Bible. And uh, I found a really good lecture uh, that he had done at the Veritas forums, where he's basically giving different Thomistic arguments for the existence of God. And I posted that video. And, again, you know, I don't, uh, obviously we don't agree with with, uh, general theory of evolution or at least certain aspects of it um but the idea that god god existing and evolution existing is is that that's not some type of a logical contradiction or something like that right i mean people could hold that god used evolution to to create um but it was it was just funny to see you know when i posted that video how angry uh they immediately all turned on ken miller uh because you know here he is <laughs> Giving arguments for the existence of God. All right. So, yeah, didn't know if you had any, any thoughts on that, but I thought that was kind of comical. But, um, yeah. Let's do this. Let's, let's. Uh, I think my, my little nephew's going to ask you another question here. We've got some lined up. So, JJ, you doing okay, buddy? You hanging in there?
3: Yes, sir.
2: All right. What? Go ahead and ask Jonathan next question.
3: How does ID explain the fine-tuning better? You get that?
4: I How say, does ID explain fine-tuning uh, yeah, sure really yeah, of so the Yes, the fine-tuning of the universe um, has re- refers to the idea that um, there are certain um, physical laws, constants, that have to be finally tuned in order um, for our universe to exist or to sustain complex load. And in other words, that's to say the universe is balanced on, on a, a razor's edge, a vertical razor's edge. And if the uh, physical laws and constants and parameters were just a little bit different, then the universe would not be able to sustain a complex life of any kind. Um, For example, uh, Roger Penrose at the University of Oxford has calculated that the initial low entropy conditions of the universe have to be finely tuned to one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power. So when you consider that there's only 10 to the 80 elementary particles in the known universe, um, you wouldn't have enough elementary particles um, in the known universe to write down all the zeros after the 1. That's how, um, that's how fine-tuned that particular parameter is. Uh, there's also the cosmological constant, which um, has to be fine-tuned to 1 part and 10 to the 120th power. There's the gravitational constant. Um, There's uh, the strong, weak nuclear forces, um, and so forth. Um, And all these, um, and and many others, have to be finally tuned to a remarkable level of um, precision. Um, So our universe is highly optimized. And there are a number of possible explanations for this. One is that it's just the product of chance, and people who in that route might and argue for um, the multiverse model to try and, to try and um, inflate the probabilistic resources um, to try and tackle the problem of cosmic fine-tuning with that recourse to a, a designer, um, but this um, cosmological the the the, um, the the multiverse model runs into a number of problems. One such problem is. The fact that it commits what, like gambler's fallacy, where um, like if you're playing a, a game of car, your opponent um, is dealt round after round um, a, a royal flush and, you, and after a plenty of rounds, you start to grow suspicious, and uh, you're that you know, you shouldn't be so surprised. I mean, and I just imagine hypothetically, there are. Um, billions and billions and billions of people in parallel universes, all playing the same card game. It's going to happen in one universe, and we just have, so happen to be in the universe where um, I happen to be the one that is being dealt this incredibly good hand after Ren. And it also runs into the uh, the Boltzmann brain problem, which is uh, the idea that it's, um, our um, uh, universe is more likely to produce a single is is, is more likely to be occupied by a single um, brain than um, than complex um, observers, and so um, well, you, it really undermines the basis for rationality. As there's a problem that once you invoke a, an infinite number of parallel universes to evade the fine tuning problem. Then you can really invoke that explanation to explain anything, um, and, and nothing is ultimately no. Um, you can explain. You can invoke it to explain any um, unlikely event. Uh, so it it really and it's something which which really in principle explains everything, really explains nothing, and so that's um, another problem with the fine tuning. Uh, sorry, the the multiverse model. Um, and uh, you, the fine-tuning could also be explained potentially by physical necessity. That is to say maybe um, the universe uh, just had to be this way with a set of laws. It was true of logical laws. Uh, but there's no reason to think that that's the case. Physicists generally are agreed that the uh, constants of physics could have occupied a, a, a wide range of Values and they occupy these values, and so this requires explanation um but we do know of a cause which is known to produce um specified complexity, which ultimately you need to explain fine tuning uh, uh, and that cause is intelligence, and so intelligence, I think, is the better explanation. Over uh, the chance hypothesis and over the physical necessity hypothesis.
2: Yeah, I mean, I uh, the the fine tuning arguments. Would you say that's probably one of the strongest arguments uh, kind of that would point to an intelligent designer?
4: Uh, I, I actually prefer the both arguments. Um, the reason for that, I think, uh, will persuade me. but also I think with the arguments the the possibility is always there. I think it's um, less plausible than the design hypothesis. We don't have an absolute handle on the probabilistic resources because um, outside of our universe um, there's nothing else that's observable. Um, Whereas with the biological realm, we really do have a strong handle on the probabilistic resources, and there's whole uh, there's a whole discipline of population genetics, which is built around uh, the work working at the um, the likelihood of sets sort of mutations appearing given the time, the, the mutation rate, and the population sizes, and so forth. Um, So I I personally prefer the biological arguments, but I think they're both very strong arguments, and I think they're certainly very powerful when taken together as a cumulative case for theism.
2: Good stuff. That's good. Talk uh, talk a a couple minutes a little bit about the micro versus macro distinction. I know um, a lot of evolutionists will say it's a distinction without a difference, Uh, but talk, talk a little bit about that, the mechanisms of evolution, uh, maybe the limits you see with with, uh, with those mechanisms. Just some of your thoughts you know, on that distinction.
4: Yeah, I mean, I personally don't like the micro versus macro evolution distinction because um, I, I think um, it, it seems to imply that macro evolution is just micro evolution over a scale or it's just um, you know, I don't think even in principle microevolution can be extrapolated to macroevolution and, and, and the reason for that is because I don't think that the information necessary for directing the morphogenesis of organismal form can be restricted to the 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 purview of the DNA molecule. I think there's information beyond that and so mutating DNA alone um, is simply the wrong tool for the job of explaining these innovations in body plan and so forth um but i, I think uh, it's um it, it, even with, with with me when when with me getting don't think it that i'm sure d n a it meets like thing um the uh, gene variants by virtue of natural selection can explain many small-scale changes. It can explain antibiotic and insecticide resistance, for example, but can it explain radically new um, innovations in protein structure, such that a protein um, undertakes novel catalysis um, and new chemistry that it couldn't um, perform before? I don't think so. But even And irrespective of that problem, I think that explaining the origins of body plans requires more than simply mutating DNA sequences. Um, So I'm not sure I I really um, um, like that distinction so much. All right,
2: good stuff. Talk to us a little bit kind of with uh, natural selection and mutation. Uh, What do you see as, Kind of as the limits uh, within that. How about this? What are some of the stronger areas? You, some of the stronger arguments given by um, a lot of the the
4: evolutionists.
2: What are what are some of their their stronger arguments?
4: Um, well, they, they have some defensible for common ancestry. Um, I think, in the majority, still so are common ancestry. I think there's some is for and some biologists against. Um, and I I certainly don't think that the arguments are as strong as many um, evolutionary biologists would like us to believe. Um, I I don't think it's simply as cut and dried, as we're often told. Um, One example of an argument for common ancestry, which I think is uh, defensible, um, is the um, argument from the... um, the placement of endogenous retroviruses in primate genomes, where you see these nested hierarchical distributions of endogenous retroviruses. And then you see, um, and, and these um, uh, retroviral like sequences have, um, there's three core genes there's the GAG, the POL, the ENV, the envelope gene, and, um, and they're. Prime three prime terminal, you have the long terminal repeat sequences which um, in the retrovirus are enhancers and um the these the retroviruses basically have invaded the primate genomes so over um, over millions of years and when we look at their sequences uh, what we find their sequences embedded fossilized if you will, in modern primate genomes, including our genomes. Um, hundreds of thousands of copies of these retroviral like sequences. And they form, um, and many of them form very uh, hierarchical, genes, which seems to be better explained given the common ancestor hypothesis. And then when you look at the individual point mutations within the genes of these retroviral, sequences, they also form similar nested hierarchical distributions. Um, and the Five prime and three prime long terminal repeat sequences is called the point of integration, and so the degree of disparity between these sequences can be used as a predictor of time since integration, and the correlation seems to be fairly strong there. So that seems to me to be a, a, a dependent. Sometimes um, creationists will argue that uh, the uh that the, these are integral to this genome and are not in five instars and no point to certain functions that have been discovered for these sequences um such as the long term repeat sequences for example seem to function as um as promoters uh, and enhancers key and minority right. but but um the the fact that you have a target site duplication and uh, seems, seems to be the hallmark of insertion by integrates because of the manner in which the integrates end up in prime-treated prime-bonds prime, prime, for the um So it seems to me that these are the real integrations, and um, perhaps the subsequent being given function. I mean, this would seem to be the argument that um, an evolutionist could make, which seems to me to be a defensible one. Other um, arguments that creationists have used sometimes on the um, sequences is. To argue that they are directed towards um, target site preferences, there they have preferential integration towards specific target sites, um, but I'm not um, at this at this point convinced that the target site preferences are locus specific enough to really explain all of that pattern. So I'm, I, I think that's one of the strongest arguments for a common ancestry point of view.
2: Okay. Okay. Good. Good enough, man. Um, great show. I uh, appreciate you coming on. And uh, I think we, we learned a lot. Uh, definitely valuable show. And uh, we'll, you know look forward to having you back on in the future. We'll do some more shows maybe in October. Have you come on and uh, talk a little bit about uh, some, some theology. But uh, keep doing what you're doing, Jonathan. Is there a blog where people can reach at?
4: Sure, I, I blog at the Christian Apologetic Alliance. Uh, I blog at, at CrossExamine.org, and I'm also at Evolution News and Views at EvolutionNews.org, org. And uh, so you can you can find me there. You can also add me on Facebook or Twitter and follow my work there. Okay, so Alright,
2: thank, thank you, Jonathan. We will have you back on again, brother. Thanks for for hanging in there and staying up late with us over there. <laughs>
4: You're welcome.
2: All right, folks. Uh, That's Jonathan McClatchy. Good show. Um, Next week, we're going to have Dr. Phil Fernandez, Institute for Biblical Defense, is going to be on. He's done numerous debates, uh, written many books. And, in fact, what we'll probably do is uh, we'll be giving away a few of his books for free for those who call in. So join us next week. I'm going to end the show by playing a clip for Ratio Christi. Uh, This is for the uh, ministry Reasons for Christ, and both me and my wife are involved in Ratio Christi, and you can go to devinpalu.ratiochristi.org to learn more about that. But thanks for joining us, and until next week, God bless.
0: If I could have a moment of your time, I would like to bring to your attention a very serious issue. The intellectual viability of the Christian worldview is being challenged in the classrooms, by other students, and even the professors. This is accomplished by anti-religious campus organizations and gatherings.
7: Look in a mirror and understand
2: the delusion of Christianity. Once you can see what is going on, the hope is that you will be able to start healing your delusion. With
7: each healing, we make our world a better place.
0: Best-selling books by famous atheistic professors geared toward college students. And speeches promoting militant atheism.
1: These people, the reflective people, they know. They know there aren't any good reasons to believe in God. We've got them on the run.
3: We're almost there. We're almost there.
0: All done with one goal in mind. Make religion look stupid while recruiting students to the secular worldview.
7: We call the world's most famous atheist, Richard Dawkins.
6: I can't tell you how excited I am to see students taking up the banner of secularism. And the Secular Student Alliance is carrying the banner forward, and it is very, very exciting to all of us in the movement to see young people involved. Young people involved. And it's working.
0: Statistics show that up to 80% of professing Christians will walk away from their faith while attending secular colleges and universities, many within the first year. They simply are not intellectually prepared to face the onslaught of even the most basic objections to the Christian worldview. How do you know that Jesus is the only way?
5: I... (laughs) This is a tough question. Why, are there, why the contradictions if the Bible is the Word of God?
0: I mean, why not believe in Muhammad with, with what he says? I mean, so what makes the Bible so different? Well, that's a good
3: question. <laughs> um, you know what? I'm going to have to pass my question for sure now.
0: We are losing the battle for our students. We need a solution to win back the universities for the cause of Christ.
9: Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. This is what the Lord asks of all Christians to do. In First Peter 3:15. Hi, my name is Jenna, and I'm a part of a university organization called Ratio Christi, which trains us to do just that. Ratio Christi is a nonprofit student apologetics organization a renaissance of Christian thought throughout secular universities around the world. Apologetics is the science and art of defending the faith using logic and reason while sharing the Christian worldview. The purpose of Ratio Christi is to train, educate, and equip students on the principles of how to think, not what to think. I'd like
5: to welcome everyone this evening to the first ever Ratio Christi debate featuring Dr. Michael Tooley and Dr. William Lane
7: Craig. Good evening, and uh, thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank Ratio Christi. Now, in tonight's debate, uh, I'm going to defend one basic contention, namely that the arguments for theism are better than the arguments for atheism.
9: Through weekly meetings, we aim to stimulate intellectual integrity with debate, lectures, dialogue and discussion on the most pressing topics of our day. The secular worldview has spread throughout universities, having an impact on the way students perceive their own beliefs. Ratio Christi is here to equip Christian students in answering the questions of science, philosophy, history and worldview. We want to achieve our goal of re-establishing Christian thinking in the academic setting. There are three ways in which you can help support Rakia Christie. Through prayer, informing other Christians of the organization, and finally, donations. Rakia Christie relies on your financial support to help sustain the organization. So come help us win back the universities for the cause.